0: Parashat Shemot, we're going to start with the first pasuk. It's not just the first pasuk of the parasha, it's the first pasuk of the book of Shemot, the book of Exodus. Shemot Yaakov If you note in the source sheet, I've highlighted two words in the pasuk. The first word is Yisrael, and the second word is Yaakov. What is the common denominator of those two words? They're both the name of the same person. It's the given name of Yaakov, who was also known as Yisrael. Now, very often, and we're going to, I must tell you, we're going to delve into this in greater detail over the next hour or so. Yaakov is referred to sometimes as Yaakov and sometimes as Yisrael. I want to really get to the bottom of that today. So we know that there was a man called Avraham. Originally he was called Avram. Without the hay. We know there was a woman called Sarah. Originally she was called Sarai. Her name changed to Sarah. After she was called Sarah. Did we ever see her referred to again as Sarai? Never. End of story. After Avram's name changed to Abraham, was he ever referred to as Avram again? Never. That's it. His name had changed to Abraham. Yaakov had this altercation with the Sarshal Esav, with the angel, whatever that means. Right? They were fighting in that in the night before he met up with Esav after having been separated for so many years. And at the end of that altercation, at the end of that um, meeting or whatever, the fight that he had with him, he asked the angel his name. The angel never gave him his name, but he says, What's your name? My name is Yaakov. No longer will you be known as Yaakov. Your name is changed to Yisrael. If I were to change your name, would I then refer to you as your previous name? No, I mean, certainly not in official documents. I think that it's fair to say that the Torah is an official document. It's an official record of the way things proceeded. It certainly cannot be considered as a flippant narrative. You know, just kind of something that was thrown together and there's mistakes. So if Yaakov's name changed to Yisrael, in the same way, as Avraham's name was changed from Avram and was never referred to as Avram again, he was always referred to as Avraham. Once Yaakov's name changes from Yaakov to Yisrael, Kisarita im Anashim whatever it says, the Pasuk there, you, you um, had interactions with your God and with other people. Now your name is Yisrael, would we ever or should we ever refer to him as Yaakov again? The assumption is not. We should not refer to him as Yaakov again. And yet he's referred to as Yaakov on numerous occasions, as we're going to see. What's particularly curious about the first pasuk in the book of Shemot is not that he's referred to by one or the other, but that he's referred to as both. In the space of one sentence, Yaakov Avinu is referred to as both Yaakov and Yisrael. That's why I highlighted those two names in the first pasuk. The translation of the pasuk is, these are the names of Israel's sons who came to Egypt with Jacob, each coming with his household. b'nei Yisrael, ish Okay. The first thing I want to do is just have a little fun with Rabbi Nachman of Breslov. Um, Obviously, I'm not trying to be flippant about it. I just want to say that Rabbi Nachman of Breslov always looks at things from a completely alternative point of view. And in this particular situation, he looks at an aspect of the Pasuk that we would all overlook and potentially ignore even if we did know it existed. And that is... He's looking for a reference in the Pasuk for its very obscure makeup. So the Pasuk itself doesn't make much sense. Shemot B'nei That's all it really needed to say. The rest of the Pasuk is fairly irrelevant. Haba'im Mitzrayimah. By the way, one of the things we're going to focus on is it says Haba'im. Who are coming to Egypt? Are they coming to Egypt? They're not coming to Egypt. They came to Egypt. Right? ba'u. Why does it say Habaim, that they are coming, in the present tense? But in any event, Habaim Mitzrayimah is an irrelevant piece of information because anyone who's read the end of the book of Bereshit, of Genesis, will know that the children of Israel, the children of Yaakov, came to Eretz Mitzrayim as a result of the famine and because Joseph could provide for them. So he could have just said, Ve'ele Shemot B'nei Yisrael. By the way, we don't even need to know the names of the children of Yaakov. We know them already. The whole pasuk and the first few pasukim of Shemot are curious in that they regurgitate information that should be familiar to anyone who's read the end of Genesis. But this pasuk, Hab'in Mitzrayimah, Eit Yaakov Yishu Veitova'u is a completely irrelevant phrase. It's an irrelevant statement. Yaakov came and each person came with a household. Well, people obviously didn't come without their households or didn't come on their own. The entire family moved. They emigrated from the land of Canaan, even if they thought it was fairly um, um, temporary. Essentially, the entire family moved from where it lived in Eretz Canaan and relocated to Eretz Mitzrayim. What is the Pasuk telling us? Now, I don't want to suggest to you that the answer that Rav Nachman of Breslov comes up with is a definitive answer to this curious formulation at the beginning of Shemot. But he does tell us that this Pasuk contains a secret message. And the message is as follows. Have a look. Shemot Yisrael ish uveto. Look at the end of each of those words. hey. Shamot Taf, Bnei Yud, right? These are the letters at the end of the words. Yisrael Lamad, Habaim Mem, Mitzrayma He, Eight Taf, Yaakov Vet, Ish Shin Uve Vav. Would you have looked at that? I don't think so. I don't think anybody, any one of us, would have looked at the end letters of each word in that first Pasuk tevot tehilim. Do you know what this spells out? Says Rav Nachman of Breslov? the word tehilim. What is tehilim? Tehilim is the Hebrew word for Psalms. The way we refer to the 150 chapters of Psalms, composed traditionally, understood to have been composed by David HaMelech, is known as tehilim. The otiyot Teshuvah. And the rest of the sentence, the final letters of each word, spell out the word Teshuvah. So, I, so if you go through it, you'll see that they spell the word Teshuvah. Ki li If you recite tehilim, if you recite Psalms, you will merit the ability to repent. Shehi shemot b'nei Yisrael Because this is the essence of the names of the Jewish uh, of the children of Israel who came or coming to Egypt. The whole idea of the Jewish nation residing in Egypt for a period of time was some type of purification process and we've discussed that in other shiurim. It is hinted at it is alluded to by the Sofei Tevot the, in the very first verse of Shemot. The first verse of Shemot ends with the letters, each word ends with the letters, Tehilim, Teshuvah. And the idea being that the, the children of Yaakov came to Mitzrayim in order to achieve some level of purification, in order to achieve that level, we know that there are 49 letters. If you combine all the letters of the names, the Hebrew spelt out names, of the children of Yaakov Avinu, it comes to 49. How many gates of Teshuvah do we have? So we know that from tradition, there are 49 separate levels of Teshuvah that you can achieve. Says so Rabbi Nachman of Breslov This pasuk shouldn't be taken literally at its meaning, although obviously we can understand what it means. But there's encoded in this pasuk the whole idea of yitziat Mitzrayim, of sorry, of of Shibud Mitzrayim, of the um, slavery in Egypt. The idea being that somehow through the process of being in Egypt, we emerged better, having been through some kind of teshuvah process in order so that we could come out as the Jewish nation. It's just a cute idea. It's out of the box. It's Rabbi Nachman of Breslev. It's looking at this first Pasuk, which makes little sense literally, although we can understand the meaning of the words, and to try and draw out meaning beyond the actual translation of the words. That's not the focus of today's Shir. The focus of today's Shir is source number three, The question, very famous question of the Noam Elimelech. Who is the Noam Elimelech? Rabbi Elimelech of Lizensk. He was the first great Hasidic leader in Poland. And to this day, he died in the late 18th century. To this day, every Adar, people travel to Ligensk to pray at his um, uh, graveside. He was one of the great rabbis of the 18th century, albeit for the Hasidic community, so many people, I'm sure, who were not aware of his existence, even in his own lifetime. However, he left behind a great legacy, his recorded work, which is the Noam Elimelech, which is one of the original um, sources of the Hasidic take, this slightly different take on the parasha, on the um, portions of the week, on the Torah portions, And very often the questions that he asks are not only answered by him, but are taken up by other Hasidic commentaries, as we're going to see today. Because I'm actually not going to put forward the answer that he gave to his own question. I'm going to put forward two other answers that were given by alternative Hasidic masters uh, um, of commentary. Um, but I'm going to—it's his question, and everybody acknowledges that this question is one that, that he seemed to have been vexed about. The question is as follows: Have a look. Tarih le taret hashinui lashon. There's two anomalies, he says, in the first pasuk of Shemot, and we need to explain the differentiation of language. The first one is shemitchila omer haba'im Belashon hava. In the first instance, it says that the Jewish nation or the B'nei Israel Habaim Mitzrayimah, who are coming to Egypt, in the present tense. Belashon Avar, Ba'u. In the end of the Pasuk, it, at the end it says, they came. So in the space of one sentence, it says they are coming and they came. So which is it? says the Noam elimelech, are we, listen, this is just narrative housekeeping. If you're writing a book, you want to keep, you know, today we have all these tools. I do a lot of writing, okay? So if you write in word, I mean, I often don't listen to these tools, but you have tools which you have embedded in your, um, um, we used to call it a word processor. Do you remember that, a word processor? We don't call that that anymore embedded in in the software you have instructions that basically tell you the way that you've written this is wrong okay so whatever it is you know for example the one of the big ones that always get on my nerves is that you're not allowed to put a comma after and okay so an and has to be followed by a space not a comma apparently this is a very important grammatical rule I don't always follow it. Can I admit? I am just, you know, I'm telling you that this is a sin that I commit on a regular basis. I often follow the word and with a comma. There's many aspects of grammar that are, um, you know, that are mistakes in the way that people write. For example, in the space of one sentence, you have to keep um, the tenses... Um, uniform right so if you are speaking in the present tense you can't now change in the course of one sentence to the past tense if you want to do so you'd have to introduce it into the next sentence or the next paragraph and it has to contextually make sense says the Noam coming oh. I, I just took this off Shemaria please forgive me Yes, I do see that, but I, I you know, the word habayim is the present tense, and the word ba'u is the past tense. It says the it makes no sense, right? It says habayim beloshon hava beloshon hava v'siem beloshon avar ba'u. The second question he has is the one which I highlighted um, in the first source, in source number one, which is. That it begins with the name of Yaakov Avinu as Yisrael, and it ends with the name of Yaakov Avinu as Yaakov, or the way that he phrases it, the Noam El Melech. Vegam al shem shem Yaakov. The Jewish nation is referred to by its name, or the name of its ancestor, Israel. And at the end of the pasuk, it's referred to or identified through the name Jacob. So the Noam Elimelech is looking at this first pasuk. And don't forget any introductory sentence to to any book. You know, it's very important. How do you start something? Again, I do a lot of writing. The first sentence of any piece that you write is extremely important. It's the introductory platform for anything that you are then going to say. The introductory platform, the foundation of the book of Shemot, is the first pasuk. And that pasuk is, it contains inconsistencies. The first inconsistency is intense. And the second inconsistency is in the way the Jewish nation is referred to. Okay? I'm not going to go into the answer that the Noam Elimelech gives to his own question. We're first going to look at the Sheyem Mishmuel, the Socha Chova Rebbe who was a, um, a grandson of the Kotzka Rebbe, a very significant Hasidic leader who died in the early part of the 20th century, and we've quoted him many times before. Yesh ledaktek bin Yan Shnea shemot Yaakov We need to understand why it is that the first Pasuk of Shemot refers to the Jewish nation by both um, calling it Jacob and Israel. Ma avidatayu. What exactly does this achieve? What is it? What is trying to be conveyed through this binary reference? Uvamasha amru zikronom libracha. Chazal tell us it's a brochus, a brgmorim brochus, dafiudimel, hakoreli Israel mishum So we mentioned earlier that Avraham Avinu's name changed to Avra. Um, sorry from Avram to Abraham once he's called Abraham you're not allowed to refer to him again as Avram only if you're reading the reference in the pasuk itself however if in any way you're talking about Avraham Avinu you're not allowed to refer to him as Avram the Gemara and Bracha says that this applies it's a general rule to anybody whose name was changed so we we have three name changes that we're familiar with in the Torah the first one is Abraham the second one is Sarah, Sarai Sarah. Who's the third one? Yehoshua. Okay, his name was Hosea, and his name was changed to Yehoshua, right? The, but those are three name changes that once the name is changed, you're no longer allowed to refer to that person by his first name, the original name that he was given. There is a fourth name change in the Torah. The one which, in fact, is most relevant to us as the nation of Jews. And that is Yaakov Avinu's change from Yaakov to Yisrael. The Gemara says that there's no problem referring to Yaakov Avinu as Yaakov, even though his name was changed to Yisrael. How do we know this? Because the Pasuk itself, the Pasukim, the Torah, refers to Yaakov Avinu as Yaakov and Yisrael, even after his name was changed. Continues... The She-Mishmuel, that's the Gemara. It says the she Haguf. So there is a reason why Yaakov Avinu retains the name Yaakov. But first we have to understand what the name Yaakov means. Why was he given the name Yaakov? We're going to talk a little bit more about this during the course of this year. Because he grabbed onto the ankle of Esav, as Esav was being born. The word akev, means ankle or heel, right? It means the bottom part of your foot. He grabbed onto the bottom part of, of Esav's foot and that somehow conveys who Yaakov is. And everybody is challenged by this. Why would you refer to Yaakov Avinu as Esav's heel? Really, that's what he's being called. Why is he being called Yaakov? Because he is Esav's heel. He's grabbing hold of Esav's heel, his ankle, whatever, that bottom part of the foot that he held on to as Esav was being born and before he was born. They were twins. Says the Shemishmuel. The idea is that Yaakov Avinu had this sense of himself as being not quite up to scratch, as as lower rather than higher. I struggle with this only because the assumption we're all going to make, because we read far too many psychobabble books, is that we're talking about Yaakov as if he had low self-esteem. I don't think that's what it means at all. He had a sense of himself as a human being with weaknesses. He's not infallible, but fallible. The word Yaakov is meant to convey that rather than me being a superhero who can star in a superhero movie, I'm an ordinary person with all the ordinary challenges that a human being can have. The human condition presents us with every possible type of challenge. So the lowest level of a human being should be seen as some kind of benchmark as to who we are. We shouldn't make an assumption that we are somehow above or beyond the human nature that governs how we live our lives. Okay, That is the name Yaakov, says the Shemish Moel inyan nishbar. There's a certain side of us which is always broken. I'm not a lev nishbar is a strong way of saying anxious about our own weaknesses. Okay, uh, that's the way I'm going to frame it. I, I didn't have the opportunity, sadly, of meeting the Sheimish Muel. But if I were to have a discussion as to how to phrase this properly forget the Hebrew, the English, I would say that uh, a human being who's um, aware of his own frailty and is concerned for that frailty, Lev seems a strong way to express it, but I get it. In other words, constantly concerned for the challenges that might send us over the deep end. That is what is connoted by the name Yaakov. The Yisrael, Yisrael is Notricon. You know what Khan is? An anagram. It's an anagram of Li-Rosh. How are, we going to say, how are we going to translate Li-Rosh? So, I have the head. That's not what it means. It means, I'm on top. I'm great. You know that uh, Muhammad Ali used to say, famously, whenever he was interviewed, I am the greatest. Don't if he was the greatest, he wasn't the greatest, he would say, I am the greatest. He had an incredible self-confidence. The word, the name, Yisrael Li Rosh, is I am the greatest. That's what it means. al alhit nasut han A certain level of superiority of the soul. I am great, not just great, I am the greatest. My abilities supersede any abilities that you can imagine. I'm greater than the sum of my parts. Li, Rosh. It's the opposite of Yaakov, right? Yaakov is about human weakness. And Yisrael is about human strength and superiority. kashi atzma ain ba shevach. And this is where the Shemish Mishmuel comes with an insight into human psychology. I'm sure he never studied Freud. I'm sure he never studied Jung. But this insight into human psychology is one we can all relate to. Neither of those two attributes or human characteristics on their own is particularly helpful. They're not praiseworthy if they are isolated. What do I mean? Says the Ra'ulit Batel, A good and strong person might allow, let's call it low self-esteem or low self-worth, to destroy them and to lead them into giving up on the world and on their abilities, even though they have great abilities. So if you are totally Yaakov, if you're totally taken up by the fact that you have weaknesses and frailties and you allow that anxiety to rule who you are and how you behave, you will never be a great achiever. In and of itself, without anything else in your quiver, you're going to unfortunately be a downfall. You're not going to be a great achiever because you're constantly telling yourself, I'm not great. I have no ability. Why am I wasting my time? You're right. I've spoken about this before many years ago. Somebody gave me a book about depression. I actually went to the book launch. It was in London. And the guy who wrote it was a wealthy New York socialite who came from a fabulous family. He himself had received, I can't remember if it was a scholarship to Harvard or to Yale. He had... Um, graduated with honours from whichever school it was and he'd fallen into a deep depression money he had brains he had uh, you know the world was at his uh, wherever he went he could have whatever he wanted and he fell into a deep depression and eventually with therapy maybe medication he came out of the depression he wrote a thick book on depression I don't remember the name of the book I don't remember the name of the author, because at some point, even though he inscribed it for me, it was stolen from my library. But there you go. I do remember the first few pages of a book in which he described the view of the world from somebody who is depressed. It was a very impressive presentation. In as much as that he said, and I'm going to summarize here in a couple of sentences, Basically, his whole concept, the concept he wanted to convey was that the way a depressed person sees the world is the way the world is. You wake up in the morning, you say to yourself, what is the point? And the truth is, all the things you're going to do during the course of the day, essentially, in the long run, are completely futile. If you're a doctor, you want to cure somebody, ultimately that person is going to die anyway. So what difference does it make if the person dies today or tomorrow in 10 years time? Why, why bother? If you're a fund manager, so you're going to go to work today, you're going to make a lot of money, but eventually, eventually the market is going to collapse, right? So what's the point of making money for your client or for your customer, whatever it is, because eventually that money is going to be lost anyway. I may as well stay in bed. I may as well not get up. Why bother eating? Because whatever I eat, in any event, it's going to go through my digestive system and it's going to be useless to me. Because tomorrow I'm going to have to eat again. So he presented the world, the sun is shining. What's the point of the sun shining? Tonight it's going to be dark. He demonstrated that there's an ultimate truth to the narrative of a depressive. And in fact, if you sit in a room with somebody who's depressed and he tells you all the reasons he's so miserable or she's so miserable, you think to yourself, you know what, they're not wrong. Well, what have I got to say which is going to convince them to look at it a different way? That's the point the Chava is making here. The Shemishmul is saying, if you are Yaakov exclusively, there's no reason to get up in the morning. What's the point? I'm a nothing. I'm a heel. I'm at the bottom of somebody's foot. I'm useless. I was born to die. I was born to fail. Everything about my life is, is just a platform for failure and for uselessness. That's what Yaakov is, okay? Now, but now look what he says. That's on its own. Similarly, arrogance and self-confidence, in and of themselves without any breaks or consideration or reflection, are also not praiseworthy. Why not? Because if you are a person who is so overconfident in your own abilities and your own importance, your own impact, your own worth, Then you get frustrated, you get angry, you get arrogant, you are overconfident, you do stupid things because you follow your own thoughts, you don't consult with others because you're so sure that you've got it right. In and of itself, self-confidence is a useless attribute. If you're only Yaakov, it's no good. If you're only Israel Rosh, it's no good, says the Shemish. Shmuel. However, if you can manage to find a fusion between these two, it's like that which it says in the midrash. Amar Yochanan, Amar Hakadosh Baruch Israel Yonati, God says the Jewish nation, it's a pasuk. I seem to remember it's in Hoshea. Yeah, I, I, I put it in, the actual quotation. Reimaktiv, that which it says, Ephraim, pota en lev. Ephraim, a child of Yosef, from one of the primary tribes in the Jewish nation, is like a foolish dove without any. The, the word lev here means any um wisdom, any um. Knowledge, any sentient intelligence, right? A dove—it sort of flits around. It's a bird. It's considered stupid and foolish. Ephraim says the pasuk in Hosea is like a yonapota enlev. Is that a nice thing to say about someone? So Hakadosh Baruch Hu says, Amar Hakadosh Baruch Hu, etzli hem ki yonapota. Why? They are to me like a foolish dove. Because as the tribe of Ephraim, whenever it is that I say something and I want something from them, they listen to me. They don't question it. It's a it's a an attitude of nasevenishma, which some could say is very foolish. It's not the way to behave. Don't you engage your brain when somebody tells you to do something? But when it comes to me, says God, they are like Yonapota Aval. When it comes to the nations of the world trying to get them to do something, they are as tough as wild animals. And here's speaking about Yehuda, Sheneamar, Gur Arye Yehuda, another primary tribe. Of the Jewish nation. That the Jewish nation is like a lion. At the same time. Can you imagine holding that thought? We are both foolish doves. And mighty lions. The whole sense of the Jewish nation's attitude. Towards the nations of the world. And that which is demanded of them is like a wild animal, the strength and the power of an animal that will stand up for itself and will defend itself and won't allow itself to be a pushover. But when it comes to God, the ultimate Jew is like a foolish or weak dove that just does as it's told. You fly over here, it flies over there. Come back, it comes back. In other words, there is this binary existence, binary personality, dual personality within the Jewish nation that makes it both like the Yonah, says the Medrash, and like an Ari. And yet we're talking about the same person or the same group of people. And this is exactly what the name Yisrael and Yaakov are trying to convey. These two names. Al-Kain. Now we understand why the name Jacob was not eradicated, uprooted, dismissed, or marginalized once the name Israel was given to Yaakov Avinu. It wasn't as if you were one and now you are the other. You were one. And now you are another thing whilst being that same thing as well. Both of them need to be fused together under one umbrella. And that in fact is our greatest legacy as the Jewish nation that we retain both the personality of Yaakov of this... Uncertainty, a certain le- lack of self-confidence and an overconfidence. We're overconfident and we feel superior. When it comes to God, we lack confidence or that is the aspiration of the descendants of Yaakov. And when it comes to the nations of the world to try and undermine our, um, uh, our personality or our um, convictions, we remain tough. And firm like Israel. If we wanted to survive Egypt, the only way we were going to do it is we had if we had a combination of Yaakov and Israel. Miruk kaful, double. Both with the tough king of Egypt. And with the tough country of Egypt, the lack of confidence and the anxiety side of things, that which we lived in Egypt, and we were susceptible to some of the the um, temptations of Egypt. And that we could somehow be drawn in and sucked into the culture of Egypt that would have undermined who we were as descendants of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. We retained the name Yaakov. We didn't allow ourselves to become overconfident, superior and you know, the self-belief to the extent that we didn't have any self-doubt. Be, uh, so that we would allow ourselves the liberty of behaving like Egyptians. So, in that way, we remained Yaakov, we remained um, on a back foot when it came to that side of things. But when it came to Pharaoh, who was trying to lord it over the Jewish nation and be superior to them, we retained our, as it were, overconfidence and self-confidence and feelings that we were special with regard to a nation that tried to, sh- to totally bury us under its own uh, myth of uh, superiority. He wants to crush them under his foot and to totally destroy them, throw their spirit to the, to the earth. But Israel managed to retain itself and sustain itself. As the Midrash says, the Midrash that we spoke about earlier, the Yonah was with reference to God. But when it came to Paro, we were Gur Arye, Kashim Keneged Umot HaOlam We were as tough um, with the nations of the world, in this case Egypt, as a wild animal that refuses to concede any ground in terms of defending itself. But when it came to God, we remained like the foolish or less confident dove and that is how we managed to retain our identity, even navigate, I would say, even as we were struggling with the slavery and struggling to retain our identity, we navigated it by being both Yaakov and Israel in that situation. Let's continue with the Nitivot Shalom. It's a very long piece. I'm not sure we'll get through the whole thing. But I think even if we get through part of it, you will get a sense of the Nitivot Shalom's answer to the question of the Noam Elimelech. To remind us of the question, the question was, why is Habaim in the present tense? They were coming to Egypt right now, the children of Israel. And why are we, the Jewish nation, referred to in this first pasuk of Shemot as both Yisrael and Yaakov? We need to really understand the essence of this idea that Yaakov and Yisrael, these two names, what exactly do they mean? Why exactly did Yaakov retain both of his names? As we mentioned earlier already in the Shemish muel, the Gemara says, This is in Baruch HaStaf Yud-Gimel That you can still refer to Yaakov Avinu as Yaakov even though he'd received a new name, Israel. Even though we know that anyone who refers to Avraham Avinu as Avram has desecrated his name and has gone against a prohibition, a deliberate prohibition, which tells us we're not allowed to refer to him by his old name once he's received the new one. And particularly, says the Nativot the, Shalom, when it comes to Yaakov Avinu, the moment we learn that he is about to descend to Egypt, Suddenly he's referred to much more by the name Yaakov than he's referred to by the name Israel. Immediately when he's told Yaakov Avinu, go to Egypt, descend to Egypt, this is in Bereshit, when God appeared to him in a vision at night and God spoke to him. How did God speak to him? What are the words that are recorded in the Torah as uh, the introduction to God's vision to Yaakov Avinu on that night? God says to him, Yaakov, Yaakov. God called out to him by his name. Did he call him Yisrael? No, he referred to him twice by the name Yaakov. By Hineni, and Yaakov responded, here I am. Al tira merda says God. Do not be frightened about descending to Egypt. Ki gadol asimcha sham. Because I will establish you there for a great nation. What is the name that he's referred to in the pasuk? Yaakov, why not Israel? How do we refer to the Jewish nation? What is the Hebrew terminology for the the Jewish nation in the Bible, in the Torah? B'nai Yisrael. What is the English word? Before we use the word Jewish, how are Jews referred to? Israelites. That's how we're referred to. If you look at translations of the Hebrew scriptures, we're referred to as Israelites. So why here, when he's being told by God to go down to Egypt, is he saying to him, Yaakov, Yaakov? I go down to Egypt, I'm going to make you a great nation. Yaakov is going to become a great nation. It should be Israel. The first pasuk of the last parasha in the book of Bereshit. And Jacob lived, Yaakov lived in the land of Egypt. Again, a reference to the name Yaakov. So time after time, with reference to going down to Egypt, Yaakov is referred to not by his new name, Yisrael, he's referred to by his original name, Yaakov. It's not a mistake. You do understand that that when the Torah does something, it's always deliberate. It's not because they forgot that he was called Yisrael, or, but you know, Yisrael was his formal name, and Yaakov was his, you know, given name, and they referred to him by his given name. That's not the way the Torah works, because Avraham Avinu is never referred to again as Avram. He's always referred to as Avraham. So obviously the Torah is crossing its T's and dotting its I's, right? I think we can all agree. So the the Nittivot Shalom is just... Kind of crystallizing for us the fact that the name Yaakov is used frequently with reference to Yaakov Avinu and coming down to Egypt. So here I'm not going to read the whole paragraph. I want to tell you, broadly speaking, what the Nitivot Shalom says. It's a very interesting. Um, insight into the book of Shemot he says essentially we don't need to know the details of Galut Mitzrayim all we need to know is that there was such a thing as the slavery in Egypt and that we merged out of that slavery into uh, freedom we became a nation and we received the Torah how many psukim could that take 20, a chapter, two chapters. But we have almost four Parshiyot, five if you include Ma'amad um, um, Har Sinai, which describe the exodus from Egypt. Describe this slavery, describe the plagues, describe the, the exodus itself, describe Kriyat Yamsuf, and eventually describe and give us a full picture of Ahmad Sinai. Why do we need to know those details? So there's a shalom that we are operating under a misconception, and by the way, this is a general problem when it comes to studying the Torah, that we're reading a history book. That somehow the Torah is there to tell us the foundation narrative of the Jewish nation. It's an interesting idea, right? So, if you want to know the foundation narrative of any particular nation, go to that nation, look at the history books, and they'll tell you how the nation was founded. Does that have any meaning now for us? So, I mean, here we live in the United States. The fact that there was terrible problems that the um, colonists had with King George III and the British government, does it have any relevance to us now? Not really. Now we've got our own problems. You know, Baruch Hashem, after almost 250 years, the United States has plenty of its own internal problems that it doesn't need to concern itself with the problems of the colonists um, in the middle of the 18th century. You know, uh, what was it? No taxation without representation. Now there's plenty of taxation, And there's plenty of representation, so we're not dealing with the problem of the colonists of the 18th century. When we look at the foundation narrative as presented to us in the Torah, we might think that we're looking at very interesting, and no question about it, um, uh, very meaningful stories with regard to our origins of the Jewish nation, but it's of no relevance to us now says an shalom, we're making a mistake. This is not a foundation narrative. This is a narrative in the present tense. Why? Because the Jewish nation has lived more in exile and in difficulty than it has within its own jurisdiction. And in fact, the book of Shemot, or those early parshiot of the book of Shemot, are there as a blueprint for how the Jewish nation behaves or what could happen to the Jewish nation in the midst of terrible, challenging exile times? The story in Egypt is not a story that's in history. It's a story that's in the present. Have a look at the way he expresses it. Gezerat, this is the, the third paragraph. Gezerat ha-galiyot b'chayei am Yisrael. You need to know... That this is like an everlasting, this is a constant um, backdrop to the, um, to the way, the way of life of the Jewish nation. The Galut Mitzrayim Kolelet Hi Kol ha-guliyot. The slavery in Egypt, the enslavement in Egypt contains all the different aspects of every exile that we would experience for all time. And as we know, it's part of our heritage, part of our tradition, that all the generations that would follow are included in the Galut Mitzrayim. As it says in the Midrash, uh, and it, the Pasuk says, it's, it's the end of of Devarim, the beginning of Parshat Nitzavim, <speaking in Hebrew> What does it mean? <speaking in Hebrew> Come and see, and I will tell you, All the different challenges and problems that you faced, what you, st- you stood up to and had to um, live with over your period of time as the Jewish nation so far. <speaking in Hebrew> First, When it was at the Yamsuf, The Pasuk uses that word. So all of these aspects are somehow, there is a literary association between what happened When the Red Sea split and what happened at Mount Sinai. Before you go into the land of Israel. It's the same root as it yatsavtem. You're standing here. In other words, you're facing up to that challenge now as well. You should know. Even those who have died and even those who are not yet here because they haven't yet been born... Lavor ucham v'nishmatam nitzvot po nitzavot po. Every single Jewish person, this is what the midrash says, is standing here today. Atem nitzavim, both nitzavim in the past, nitzavim here in the present, and you'll continue to be nitzavim in the future. V'hai nu shekal elu hamuraot bechaye am Yisrael lo ayu lezor ha'hu bilbad. Any aspect of the challenges that were faced by the Jewish nation at that particular point in history were not unique to them in that point, in that time in history, but were things which were precursors for the future. Every Jewish soul. Every Jewish soul. Both those who have died and those who would live in the future kulam itchem berucham they were all there together with you as you emerge from Egypt the jewish nation was formed as a whole somehow they are represented even though they may not have been there physically they are represented through the uh, story of yetziat mitcharayim kriyat yamsuf bekabalat haTorah Viyata Aretz. in all the different levels of the story coming out of Egypt, Yamsuf, receiving the Torah and coming into Eretz Yisrael, we were all there. We were all part of that story. And if that's the case, that even in the exile in Egypt, everybody was there. They were all part of that experience. They all felt the same pain, even if we have no um, uh, conscious memory of it. Unconsciously, it is part of our DNA. And this is what the Gemara says in Psachim Daf Tet Zayin. Why do we say this on Pesach? It's a quotation. The Gemara and Chazal obviously took it from previous generations. We have to envision ourselves as if we left Egypt. What are you talking about? We didn't leave Egypt. Why would we have to envision ourselves? Do I have to envision myself as somebody who lives in the United States as if I fought in the Revolutionary War? No, I don't have to feel that way. Do I have to feel that I took a side in the Civil War? Is it important for me? By the way, it's important for some idiots, but it's not important for me. Why? Because I'm not dealing with that problem now. I live in in the United States at the beginning of the 21st century. It's got nothing to do with what happened 100 or 150 or 250 years ago. And yet every year we sit down at the Seder and we say this formula. What is the formula that Chayav Adam Lirot Etatzmo Kehluhu Yatsamim Itshaim Lo Itavoteinu Bilvad Gaal Hakadosh Baruch Hu Mimitzshaim? God didn't simply redeem our ancestors out of Egypt. He also redeemed us together with them. Because it says in the Pasuk, He brought us out of there. Because we need to understand that we're not simply Jews in the year that we live. And Egypt happened whenever it was 3,300 and something years ago. That's not what it's about. What we need to understand is what we were in Egypt. We have to get that sense. And as Bil'am said in his blessings, God took them out of Egypt. Belashon Hava is taking them out of Egypt. Motzi'am, he's taking them out. We are constantly in the motion of being removed from slavery in Egypt. Shehu davar ha'haava tamid, a constant present tense with reference to something that happened in the past. B'chol davar vador, shekel motzi am itshaim. V'al pize muvoar hetev shechilek hatorak dosha haosek begalut v'yitziat mitshaim lo sheyach raklot ador. That being the case, we need to understand that that part of the Torah which deals with the exodus from Egypt is not simply dealing with a historical narrative that relates to a generation that was somewhere in the distant past. It's not what it's about. It's not about just them. It is a Torah that is relevant in its, as I guess, completeness. It's, it's something which is which encapsulates every single generation. And through understanding Shemot, we will understand how we, living wherever we live, whether we live in Jerusalem or we live in Beverly Hills or New York or London or Johannesburg or Sydney, wherever we are, that we can understand how we are meant to deal with our particular galut by learning the first few parshiot of Shemot. We can understand how we're meant to respond or how we're meant to believe and have faith in the midst of great challenges that we face in the galut that we find ourselves in. Don't think it's a story about the past. You know, they say you can learn from history. You know why they say that? Because most people never learn from history. For us, there's no such thing as history. Do you know that there is no Hebrew word for history? Did you know that? There is no Hebrew word for history. What is the modern Hebrew that you've written word for history? Historia. Historia. Why? Because there's no Hebrew word for history. Do you know why? Because there's no such thing as history. History somehow indicates that it's not relevant to me. It's something that happened in the past. It's interesting and it's fascinating, but it's not relevant to me. You know, I love Jewish history. I lecture on Jewish history all the time. What always strikes me, whenever I am um, negotiating or trying to find my way through the highways and byways of Jewish history, is how similar Jewish history is to the life that I'm leading now. I mean, there's obviously, there weren't cell phones then, and there weren't the wonders of modern technology, but human personalities, never change. Human frailties never change. The challenges that one faces from the outside or from within never change. There's no such thing as history. The reason people don't learn from history is because they treat it like history. And what happened then has got no relevance to us now. It's never exactly the same, right? That's what people say. You know, the reason why there was a stock market crash in 1929 There were unique circumstances then that couldn't occur now. In which case, why have there been regular stock market crashes since 1929, some of them equally devastating for many people? Because people tell themselves that's history. It's not relevant to now. It's not history. Greed has got nothing to do with history. It's human nature. Why was there a stock market crash in 1929? Because there was greed. Why would people lose money now by investing in speculative financial products? Because they're greedy. That's got nothing to do with 1929. That's got to do with human nature. The whole sense, says the Netivot Shalom, are the first parts of Shemot, is don't simply marginalize the stories of the Jewish past as historical episodes that have no relevance to today, they are written in the present. Habaim Mitsraimah. You right now are coming to Egypt. You are facing those very same challenges that the Jewish nation faced when they came to Egypt. Now let's try and understand why we need Yaakov and why we need Israel in that equation. Seeing as we now understand that the Torah wants to convey to us a present tense concept of exile and difficulties and challenges that we face right now, right? Chalek muhuti me'am Yisrael. Now it's relevant to us right now. It's, it's contemporary. inyan she'katub ben Yaakov Yisrael. Now we can understand why we need both Yaakov and Yisrael. She'hima bet d'rachim b'avodat Hashem because those names both represent, or represent, two different aspects of the way we relate to God. Yaakov in Yano, kemode katuv. What's Yaakov? Ve'yado ochezet ba'akev Sav, Baikrosh shmo Yaakov. The first challenge the human being faces this, by the way, was the first challenge Yaakov Avinu faces was, he grabbed, hold, and fought, and remonstrated with the heel the bottom of the foot of his brother Esav, the Israel who while Israel is a more elevated form of struggle. That is because a human being also contains intellectual and emotional qualities that rise above the basic needs. ...of the animal instincts. So what is the aspect that is called Yaakov? The struggles that we have with the most base instincts within human nature. That is what the name Yaakov represents. What does it mean that he was holding on to the heel of his brother Esav? He was immediately upon being born struggling with this idea. Subconsciously perhaps, it's hard to understand that a baby would already have this sensitivity. But clearly his neshama wanted to immediately... Grasp and grapple with the baser instincts of human nature. That's, that's how it begins. Even before he was born, he immediately began this battle with the Esav element of this world. Esav represents the base instincts of human nature. How do we battle? A sav through fear. But that word Yira means fear. I don't think it's an adequate translation. So we always translate it as fear. I don't think it's an adequate translation. I think what it means is a, a sensitivity to consequences. What is fear? Why, why am I not willing to if somebody's got a gun and it's the gun, the gun is pointing at me, why am I not going to do anything that challenges that person? Because I don't want to get shot. The word that we use in English is fear, right? Fear is just like a code word. I don't want anything to do anything that's going to provoke a negative reaction that might lead to my own destruction, right? And I have a sense ...of the fact that there's a grave danger posed by that gun that's pointing towards me. We get that? Do we have that sensitivity to the challenges that we face as human beings? Do we really understand that? That's what Yira means. When we say Yirat shamayim, we're not talking about Yirat shamayim that I'm standing there, you know... ...frightened and shaking because I know God exists. No, it means I understand that there's long-term consequences. The effects of me behaving in a particular way or giving in to particular desires or instincts has a long-term consequence on my neshama, my relationship with God, on my ability to function as a spiritual person. Yirat ha'onesh, fear of sin. There is a law and there is a judge. I know that that's the case. Now I always use motoring analogies. Come to a red light, there's no cars around. I can go through the red light. But I don't want to go through the red light. Why don't to go why wouldn't I want to go through the I don't want to lose my driver's license? Because driving's really important to me. So even if there's no one there, there might be a policeman around the corner that's there, or there might be a camera or something, somebody might see me and report me. I've got no idea. Do I really need to go through could I wait another minute until the light goes green? Of course I could. That's what it means. Yesh ve yesh dayan. That's what your uh, means. I have a sense of consequences. Vashem Yisrael, but meanwhile the name Israel inyano avoda halyonot b'ginat li rosh. That's already at a higher level. Once I've, I've managed to get the base dealt with, now I can deal with a higher level of being Yisrael Now I can contemplate the greatness of God. I'm not going to read through to the end. Page 3, he goes into greater detail about this idea. What he says is that now that we know the Galut Mitzrayim is in the present, now we understand why both the names Yaakov and Yisrael need to be mentioned. Yaakov is the baseline. Yaakov, even though he was renamed Yisrael, once he's going to Egypt, he needs to deal with the Yaakov aspects of human existence because he's going to face... The flesh pots of Egypt. That's going to be very challenging for him, any human being, even Yaakov Avinu. But ultimately, if you are to emerge as the Jewish nation, you also need to have the Israel, the Lirosh aspect of, of the human condition, which is the spiritual side, the God-aware side. It's only through a fusion of these two that we can emerge, not, out of, not just out of Galut Mitzrayim, but in any galut that we find ourselves, both by being Yaakov and by embracing our Yisrael. We'll leave it here for today.